I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and we have a very fun one for you today. Heather Radke is an SAS journalist and contributing editor and reporter at Radiolab, the Peabody award-winning program from WNYC. She's written for publications including The Believer, Long Reads, and The Paris Review, and she teaches at Columbia University's Creative Writing MFA program. Her debut, which is kind of like a critical history, let's say, it is called Butts, A Backstory. <laughs> Welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Heather, why butts? And I asked that as a two-part question. Mm -hmm. What made you want to write about butts and what made you decide to call the book butts when there are so many different adjectives and euphemisms um, to describe yes. that area? <laughs> Such a good question. Well, um, I'll tackle the second one first, which is that, you know, I it was never called anything else. I always thought it should be called butts. I I think part of it is that you get such a reaction. You say the word but to people, and I ha have been saying it to people for about five years now, <laughs> pretty regularly. And um, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the intro actually is about just how the even the word itself kind of makes it so that we it, like we we struggle to to name this part of our body correctly and even the word butts is a is a euphemism so mm -hmm. there's like there's kind of like no um like there there there's no like there's no like correct word and I was pretty interested in that as as almost like a symbolic representation for one of the things I was trying to say in the book which was you know this is a part of our body that we sort of don't take seriously and um we don't always think super complicated thoughts about but it's actually there's such a rich and complicated history to it and i i guess i just wondered what if we did take it seriously like what mm -hmm. might we discover and yeah, then in the as intro, oh, oh sorry no uh, in, the, in the intro you remind us that like it's 
kind of shocking to see like a picture of, of your butt <laughs> because it's just not a view that you normally have. Um, yeah, to totally. I, I mean, it's like every time I've ever seen a picture of my own butt or sort of you catch it in the mirror or whatever, it's always a little bit of a, it's, it's definitely a shock. You kind of, um, just, it's not a part of your body that you, you always know what it looks like. It's sort of more for other people, or it's more often observed by other people than it is by yourself. And, and yet it's still a source of shame or pride, depending on what's happening in the culture at that very moment. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's the, you know, our feelings about our butt are so context dependent, you know, geography, <clears throat> identity in all kinds of ways, you know, what, what decade we're living in, what decade we grew up in, um, what stories our aunts and mothers told us about our bodies. So it's, it's, but I think it is kind of uniquely positioned on the body. Well, not uniquely, I suppose, like your back and the back of your neck and maybe your calves <laughs> or something are all sort of similarly positioned. But um, it's interesting that like, because you can't see it yourself, that like it's it's always sort of being what not just what it looks like, but what it means is kind of being put onto it rather than um, something that's a little bit maybe easier to take ownership over, like your face, maybe. Right. And if we, so, so you start out getting into the more biological, evolutionary kind of um, ideas about what purpose does a butt serve? And, and there are a few theories if you want to take us through a couple. Well, there's kind of like two parts of the butt. And here we should probably say like oh, yeah. this book focuses on women's butts specifically. Um, and as I'm often put in the position of saying it's the yeah. cheeks not the whole so like <laughs> um and I it's kind of important because actually there's like entire yeah. other books that could be written about all of those things and actually as I say in the intro too like there's many more books that could be written about women's butts too um mm -hmm. which is why I w insisted on calling it a backstory instead of the backstory which was a, a conversation we had at some length um Okay, so the biology of the butt, it's basically like there's a muscle and then there's fat on top of the muscle. The muscle is relatively straightforward because it's actually just a lot easier to know what muscles are for evolutionarily and biologically. So um, the butt muscle, the gluteus maximus, and there's a couple of other ones in there. They help us to run and jump. And that actually helped us to, to become like very good hunters in the early days of the homo sapien hominid moment. Um, and that helped us to basically like, you can run down an antelope and you can run forever and ever. And the antelope can only sprint and eventually it wears itself out and dies and you can beat it over the head. It's so gr gruesome. And then all of a sudden you can like eat all of these, this like massive amount of calories that's stored up in a, in an animal, like an antelope. And that helped us to be able to have big brains and have babies with long gestations and all kinds of things that were crucial for our humanity. But the fat on women's butts specifically is really complicated and really hard to know. I mean, there's like a relatively straightforward answer, which is like female humans have more fat on their bodies than almost any other animal on earth. And that is because it's 
very energetically expensive, as scientists say, to ha- bear a child and breastfeed. As I'm well aware, I'm like breastfeeding my baby like <laughs> right? 45 yeah. times a day. <laughs> um, and, um, but then there's a question of like, so then why, why does that fat have to be stored where where it is? As one scientist said to me, like, you know, it could just be like the fat could have just been in our knees or our elbows or whatever. Um, and maybe that it's just stored in our, our butts and bellies because, uh, that makes, it's like you wouldn't topple over in the way that you might, if it was like stored (laughs) in your shoulders. So like, that's a pretty straightforward and probably, you know, simple, makes sense kind of answer. But there's a lot of theories that emerged in the last, you know, in the late eighties and early nineties apart as a part of evolutionary psychology that, that offer kind of other explanations that are pretty dubious and also can cause kind of a lot of harm if they're not handled carefully you know so some people think that women with big butts are more fertile than women without big butts the science behind that is very thin and not very good i i don't think and i think it's the th- those kinds of studies are often like cited in like maxim magazine and kind of sure like, but we should be really careful with saying that kind of stuff because it, what it does is it suggests that there's a kind of butt or a kind of body that's more correct or more fit or more evolved even in some sense than another one. And that's actually just, there's there's no evidence to support that being the case. As once a philosopher of science said to me, any butt that's not killing you is, is good enough. Doing its job. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there you talk a lot in the book about women's bodies are just not uniform. They they contain so much fat, um, but you can't predict where. Everybody yeah. who stood in a dressing room knows knows this for a fact. Yeah, it's definitely like the thing that um, maybe most people kind of talk to me about about the book, and that I I one of the ways I did early research for the book was I did oral histories with women and non-binary people about their bodies because one of the things I was interested in was like basically creating like a deep history of a very personal and relatively mundane feeling, which is like standing in a dressing room and having clothes that don't fit. But I also knew that I only had one experience of being in a body. And so I wanted to make sure I had conversations with other people to understand what their experience was. But most people, people I talked to, if not all of them had something to say about that moment in the dressing room, you know, because clothes, it can feel bad when clothes don't fit your body. But as I learned in reporting the book, like they're kind of not supposed to fit your body. (laughs) Like they, like they, I mean, it really doesn't feel like that's true, but they can't, it's basically impossible. The only way you could ever have clothes that fit you really well is if you made them yourself and tailored them to your specific body so which is of course the, how clothes have been made for many many centuries until adult. yeah until I mean actually the way a lot of clothes were made until really recently especially for non-rich people was like here's a tunic and here's a belt you know like yes. you get a little bit that's like a forgiving garment you know what I mean <laughs> I'm not I think it's sort of one of the better ways of having clothes work but yeah, the history of size is very fraught and complicated and sort of weirdly, I, I don't think it's, I mean, hidden is sort of a complicated word, but to some extent, I think it's very unknown considering how much 
low level harm it causes all of us on a daily basis. So it it felt comforting <laughs> to realize that you do put theory behind a lot of this, a lot of these feelings that I couldn't quite name. Like I did abs of steel every day in the 90s, not buns because I was a little more concerned. I did not have an itty bitty waist as Sir Mix-a-Lot would say. Um, (laughs) And I hadn't considered how that plays into the idea of the hardworking American who can lift themselves up by the I was almost going to say butt straps. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's kind of good. That sort of seems right. But um, yeah, I mean, the rise of fitness culture like really maps on in an interesting way to the rise of neoliberalism. And it makes so much sense, right? Like the that um, taking control of your own body and so is almost it 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 it's very similar to this idea that it's like it's your responsibility to to make the money and make you know make sure your life is what it what you want it to be just like it's your responsibility to have a body that looks good and is healthy and is perfect and of course both of those things are myths i mean you you can't there's you know there's obviously like more than i could even begin to say with the problems of neoliberalism here but (laughs) with the stuff about the body it's like you know there's ways you can change your body but there's a lot of ways you can't and one of my favorite parts of reporting this book was when i talked to the women who are part of the fat fitness movement in um in the 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 women I talked to were were doing fat fitness in the Bay Area in the 80s, and they were really excited about the parts of the aerobics movement that seemed really fun and exciting, which was like being able to move their bodies and feel strong and healthy. But they were not interested in, you know, conforming to these ideals that they just basically were never going to live up to. So, you know, they created a whole kind of counterculture of aerobics that um, where they could do, they could modify exercises, they could dance around the room, they could just, they could sort of live joyfully in the bodies that they had. And I, I found their story to be like quite profound and really fun. We are still trying to define that joy. Yeah, totally. So many of us. And yeah, there's also the idea that like, if I work hard, I should be able to earn a living. Or <laughs> if I work hard, I should be able to achieve my goals. And um, your body is just another thing that is not exactly as in your control as you might want, or they, or you know, that neoliberalism wants you to think. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of. I mean, this is a thing. I I'm so glad you picked up on this theme. It's like over and over again, it's like, you just see the way a body is what it's going to be. And humans have this like, strange desire to order bodies and control bodies and, you know, try to almost turn them into industrial products, like interchangeable parts or something. But bodies always kind of end up resisting that it's, it's really not that easy to change your body, actually. Like, I mean, you can do buns of steel all day long, but your, your butt is not going to actually change that much without surgery, frankly. And I mean, lots of people do have 
BBLs and, you know, that's like a whole other conversation, I guess, but, uh-huh, the, uh-huh. but, um, I, I actually th- often kind of find it a little bit like delightful that bodies are so resistant to our efforts to, to change them and order them and turn them into something that, you know, is, is sort of uniform instead of very, very specific. And and you have this really fascinating um, moment in the book when when you explain who Norma is and um, why the hunt for Norma was was so um, exciting for capitalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and eugenicists. The yeah, so and Norma. Eugenics. So in the late '30s and early '40s, there was this kind of interest in the normal and um these two guys a artist and a gynecologist like classic combo (laughs) right (laughs) they they got together and they decided to make these two statues norma and norm man and um they wanted to show americans like what like the ideal body was, but for them, the ideal body was the most normal body. Um, but that's the, that's like one of the ways, an interesting place where we see kind of see an interesting tension where like the normal is also the perfect. And, um, so they found these two sets of data. One of those data sets is really interesting. It helped to sort of go and turn into like the how we make clothes fit which is like another story but so they have these two sets of data one for norma one for norman and <laughs> they create these kind of like bizarre statues that are like the perfectly average perfectly normal white able-bodied american born woman and man and they pl- display them in the museum of natural history in new york and then eventually those statues go to cleveland and then they actually have a contest in Cleveland to kind of reverse engineer Norma to try to find the most normal girl in Cleveland who fits this, the measurements of this statue that were created out of like the average of all these American women. And of course they like, can't find one. They find what's this one woman, Martha Skidmore, who's the closest, but um, I mean, a thing I just find that's so interesting is just like, again, they're, they're putting forward this idea of the normal but like it's an un- it's still an unattainable ideal because you actually can't find somebody with this like perfectly average set of measurements and of course there's also like so much wrong with their data set in addition to that which <laughs> is like course. they got rid of all the women of color and at that time that probably would have also included jewish women and italian women and eastern european women although that's not entirely clear um in this data set because what they weren't of course trying to find the most average american woman in in any real sense they were trying to find like the most perfect eugenicist woman basically um so they they had to monkey with the data to get that and it's i i didn't realize until you were you reminded me that norma and norman were were put in a museum that this is another theme of your book. The, the, the basement of, of average people or the um, certainly the, the debasement of the woman who in the 
early right. 19th century came to really symbolize all of the racial coding right. about our butts. Tell, yeah, tell so Sarah, Sarah, yeah, so Sarah Bartman, um, she was born in what is now South Africa at the beginning of the 19th century, and she was brought up to London around 1810 to be displayed in a freak show in London because she had a big butt and big butts by that time had become linked with African women as part of a, you know, obviously pseudoscientific project of creating race essentially and creating racial hierarchies. So people weren't just using skin color to create racial hierarchies, but we're also starting to use body type. And so these two men brought Sarah Bartman up and they displayed her in this freak show. And then eventually she she ended up in Paris where she died and her body was dissected by a man named Georges Cuvier, who was one of the most famous scientists of the 19th century. He invented paleontology, um, but he was very invested in this project of creating racial hierarchies. And when he performed an autopsy on her body, he used that autopsy report as evidence. And so did many, many other people for the next at least 100 years for evidence of um, white people being of a higher racial order than African people. And then he also displayed her body parts in his museum. And actually, they stayed displayed in Paris until the 1980s. So it's really something that still, you know, lives very much in in all of our lifetimes. And the stereotypes that he was enshrining in that autopsy report have retained quite a lot of potency. And we see them, you sort of see them all the time, even today, over and over again, this idea of the big butted hypersexual black woman, and even the big butted white woman later on in the 19th century, other scientists started to say that I mean, they're not like to even call them scientists is a little bit weird, but that's what they thought they were. Um, they started to also do these studies with sex workers, white sex workers, and where they would say, oh, like this hypersexual women have big butts. And that's just there is a kind of physiological link. And if there is a physiological link, then your average man has, has reason yeah can't help himself of course yeah and I mean that's sort of of course what ultimately they were doing with creating this hypersexual black woman was it's a justification in some sense of for rape and as a way to continue slavery in the American South so it's a very dark and upsetting and um really tragic story that is you know, still lives with us in a, in pretty profound ways. It does. And one of the things that you get into after that is the idea that perhaps even in that era, white women were appropriating um, things that were not culturally theirs this time by perhaps inventing or wearing a bustle in their Victorian outfits. Yeah. So Tell it was actually yeah. one of the first things I got interested in when I was trying to figure out if this was a book project or an essay project or what was I, I started to think about the bustle, which is this sort of 
bizarre 19th century garment, undergarment, where it's like a cage or a pad or people sometimes just use newspaper that you just tie around your waist and it makes your butt look, frankly, like enormous. It's like a quite, it creates quite a striking silhouette. And um, I just was sort of like, why did people do that? What a weird thing to do. And I pretty quickly found a, a theory that's, you know, you see it kind of pop up throughout like the 20th century about the bustle, which is that it's, um, it's a, it mimics the silhouette that was very commonly seen of Sarah Bartman in the early 19th century. And so, you know, you can never really know why a fashion becomes a fashion. It's one of the actually, frankly, like very interesting things about clothes is it's it, because it's not textual, it has like a, um, a slightly different way of mode of understanding and mode of making meaning. But I think it's pretty clear to me that at least one of the things that was going on with the bustle was that it was a, an echo, a visual echo of Sarah Bartman's body and a, a way for white women to kind of play in blackness in a way that we're maybe pretty these days. It's, it's maybe more familiar in a, in a, um, character like Miley Cyrus or something, but, um, and, you know, less extreme examples also, but there was this way with a bustle that they could literally strap on this fake butt. And then at the end of the day, take it off. And it's, um, you know, it's something the cultural critic, Greg Tate might call, he didn't say this about the bustle, but I sort of say it's a similar idea as, you know, it's a way that white people can take on everything but the burden. They can mm-hmm. they can put on blackness and then take it off as it as it sort of suits them, um, and play around inside of these stereotypes that they themselves have created. And then, of course, you get further into fashion trends, um, and it, and it becomes very clear that or it's always been clear, let's say, that um, anything that we're told is empowering or liberating um, often is not. And and your first example of that was the idea that women were getting rid of their corsets and they're no longer physically confined in the days of flappers in the 20s. Um, but still that physical confinement is there. It just kind of comes from within. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an idea that the kind of brilliant fashion historian Valerie Steele first put forward, which is like the course that kind of, instead of being on the outside of the body, it comes inside the body. And um, instead of, yeah, instead of having a garment that confines you and creates a silhouette, you actually have to confine yourself and create a silhouette. So that in the twenties, you see the invention of like the bathroom scale and the fad diet and, you know, women are chewing nicotine gum to lose weight and the first plastic surgeries are happening. So instead of having bustles and corsets and petticoats that are creating a silhouette, it's like the job of the woman to create a silhouette. And I mean, I don't want to wear a corset every day for sure, but like you have (laughs) to start to wonder which is actually worse. And I think that there's this narrative about the Victorians, you know, that, that they were so, confined and that the corset was this torture device. And I mean, I suppose it doesn't make it any less of a torture device to have found a new torture device, but I think it's just an interesting thing to always ask, like, 
to question the narr- that particular narrative of liberation because that that silhouette the sort of super you know that what some people call the rectangle woman it's really stayed with us for at least 100 years and it's you know now there's a, all these articles coming out that's like skinny's back heroin chic is back yeah which is you know in some sense you could make an argument it never really left yes but it's a very pervasive form and it's a it's a it's a silhouette of control you know it's mm-hmm. it's not a silhouette of liberation in the way that even heroin chic you know there's a way that that's like a grunge kind of cool subcultural thing but what it asks of women is to have is to create a body that you know most women could only have if they were starving themselves or on drugs I guess if this is the sort of what they're talking about when they say heroin chic and the talking about corsets of course brings me back to <laughs> we had to end up with Kim Kardashian <laughs> at the end anyway and and to me, that feels like the epitome of the backwardness of our times that she still waste trains, mm-hmm. celebrates her butt, but there's there's a very specific way that she can, there's a very specific way that her body needs to look. And if she deviates from that, people won't love her as much on Instagram. <laughs> like, well, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about Kim Kardashian, but I think yeah. it's like none of, you know, it's, it's not a size acceptance movement that she's starting. No. It never was right. Like it's not, she's not saying all bodies are beautiful. She's saying by my waist trainer, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean? so, um, you know, I think to the extent that big butts have come into mainstream fashion there's so much to say about how and why that mm-hmm. happened but it's it's not like every butt is good and it's not like every big butt is good i mean kim kardashian's butt is sculpted and managed and created and what she's demanding is that you know to the extent that she's the one driving that trend it's that you know She's saying you should look like me, which is going to require a lot of work. And, you know, that's what, you know, when you, when I was looking at all these kind of like magazine articles in the, in the aughts and 2010s and um, newspaper articles and in, in people who follow on Instagram, you know, they're all trying to sell you something. And the only way they can sell you something is by telling you that what you have now isn't right. And that if you buy or do this thing, it will, you will become right. So it's still a question of, control and hierarchies and telling women that their bodies are in some sense incorrect which is depressing I know it sounds all sort of depressing I promise it's also fun (laughs) oh it's it's very fun well so let's talk about fun um because you spend a lot of time talking about big Fridia um tell me about twerking in this context Well, I was, so twerk was, I was pretty interested in the question of like what had happened in the 2010s specifically and why so many white women had gotten interested in big butts and having them and shaking them, I guess. And twerk was a way for me to explore that question. But one of the things that I really liked learning about was about the history of this dance that's very old and very 
liberating. And, you know, it has a, a big Frida is this, she's a drag queen from New Orleans who is, you know, helped to found the bounce, which is the dance, the music form that twerk is really like the dance for in a lot of ways. And, you know, for her, it's, it's a dance of liberation and it's a dance of liberation that comes out of these very old forms of dance that came over with enslaved people and came up from the Caribbean and South America and kind of mingled and merged in New Orleans and other parts of the South and eventually combined with dance hall and other forms of 20th century dance and became this dance form that's like really about having a lot of fun and um then of course as it always is it's you know then it becomes appropriated by white people specifically by Miley Cyrus in 2013 um but I think knowing the history of something like twerk and honestly the history of butts I think there's a way you can sort of take not take twerk very seriously if you don't think very hard about it you know it's like this booty dance shake your booty whatever and that's and to some extent that does the dance a disservice it's actually a an important dance that can tell us a lot about American culture and American history and there's a lot of joy and fun in learning that and to and finding out about these kind of like nuances of the things that we don't always take as seriously as we might so when I talked to scholars like Kira Gaunt about that and when I like really started to learn about these early days of twerk it just it's it I mean just for me I think it helps me to see the world in a more complex and exciting way I love that but a backstory uh out now Heather before we go would you please recommend some books for us sure yeah um okay so the first book I want to recommend is The History of White People by Nell Painter this book like what in my early research for butts was totally profound kind of life-changing book um painter is a really well-known african-american historian who had written a book that was a kind of encyclopedic volume about the history of black america and then she wrote this kind of counter history the history of white people and i think one of the things that's so important about this book is that it helps us to see the way that whiteness is constructed just as much as any other racial category and it's full of just fascinating and um, obviously very upsetting um, historical details. Uh, one of my favorite books that came out this year is Easy Beauty by Chloe Cooper Jones. Did Maybe you've had her on. Yeah. Um, it's such a beautiful book that so really beautiful. helps helps to sort of think in new ways about what beauty is and what bodies are. And it's just so beautifully written and a a real pleasure to read. Um, And then I, I, one of my favorite books and kind of a model for butts um, is a book called let's talk about love by Carl Wilson. Do you know this book? Yes. It's called let's talk about love, a journey to the end of taste. And it's about Celine Dion and uh, Wilson is a Canadian music critic. This book is probably about 20 years old and he basically asks, why do I hate Celine Dion so much? And then he takes it so seriously. And I think like one of the things I was super interested in doing in this book is thinking about things we don't always take seriously and then wondering what might happen when we do. And the the Celine Dion book is, it's such a pleasure to read. It's so fun, but it's also like a earnest and thoughtful investigation of taste, which is like such an important thing that forms 
not only how we think about culture, but also how we think about bodies, like what we think is beautiful, what we think is sexy, what we think is good. Those are, those are in some sense, questions of taste and his willingness to kind of push against his own assumptions is something that I really admire. And the way he constructed that book, I think is just kind of brilliant. Love that. Thank you so much, Heather. Oh, thank you. This was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.